1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every
0: weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Delighted to introduce Jesper Broden. He's the president and CEO of Inca Group. Um, They are home to three businesses. Of course, all of those IKEA stores that are around the world. We're also talking about their shopping centers and then their investments arms. So a lot to talk about. And as I said, they are operating globally. Um, Per. so nice to have you here with us. Um, I got to ask you. you, first of all, you. you said, as we were getting ready to set up that before we get into what you guys have done in terms of sustainability at the store and the DNA that is, um, the sustainability really within your company culture, you said to us, this is the first time you've traveled in six months that you've left Sweden and you're in the mm-hmm. Netherlands. Just talk to us about how that feels. Talk to us about the last six months. You guys operate globally. Um, the virus has just impacted us um, also. So just just tell us kind of how things are going.
2: Well, you know, this year for us, like for everybody uh, on this planet, we have been through um, a very special journey this year. And I must admit, as I shared with you too, to be traveling again, I felt a bit like the old movie Castaway when uh, coming back to, to the office, seeing people uh, um, and enjoying that also, I must say. At the same time, obviously, um, we just like everybody else have figured out new ways of leading. Uh, we have figured out that we, we um, uh, didn't have a map for this situation, but we had a very strong compass, I think, with the, the way we like to lead and our values that helped us actually. I think, take many good decisions, but it's been a ride. It's been a ride, no doubt about it.
0: It's interesting that you say that and we're going to get into kind of your sustainability strategy. That is so much the IKEA and corporate culture here. But I do wonder, having so many of those measures in place, are there any specific anecdotes that you can tell us that helped you guys get through this crisis because of those green initiatives, those sustainable initiatives?
2: Well, you you can say, I think it's all intertangled, right? People, planet uh, and business. And you can't take out any of these uh, from the equation. Uh, So what happened obviously to us um, was that we had uh, periods of dramatic closures in in our stores, and we had to find ways to to both uh, protect ourselves, our people, our customers, uh, and then on the other hand, we had to make sure that we could save the jobs for the future. And the way what actually happened in the end of the day was that we were speeding up everything around uh, multi-channel and online and uh, we went from uh, a good year to a record loss forecast to actually coming back on half of our uh, estimated profit in the end of the day and that was thanks to i think the entrepreneurship of getting things right uh, quickly
0: do you think we're through it do you are you guys getting ready for another wave
2: well, you know, I, I think uh, at a certain moment, we were, we were quite early on uh, forecasting uh, different scenarios. Um, and the period that we have just entered, we called <clears throat> the new normal. And I think it's a bit of a deceptive term in a way, because uh, the way we see it is that for at least a year to come, we need to be very agile, very prepared for outbreaks. I think the term uh, second wave uh, could be misunderstood. So we like to... Uh, plan for outbreaks and how to deal with that in in the best possible way, Uh, both for jobs, for business uh, um, and for everything we do in society and contribute to. And obviously it's clear for all of us that, you know, one year later again, it's still going to be learnings. There will be things that we will be, um, uh, you know, doing differently and there will be a lot of, I think, amazing things that we carry with us from this period as well, hopefully including the way we realize the importance of investment in sustainability and the opportunity of doing that right.
0: Well, let's get to that because despite this being a crazy year, a tumultuous year, you guys are on track and forgive me, I'm gonna read from my notes cause I wanna get it right. You're on track to achieve and exceed a goal to produce as much energy from renewable sources as you consume by 2020. You have made massive investments, about two and a half billion euro in wind and solar power. You've set a 2030 goal to be climate positive, meaning you're gonna reduce more gas emissions than you emit. You are in, you know, when it comes to electric, 100% electric, 100% of the time ahead of targets when it comes to deliveries in Shanghai by EVs. Um, You're doing that in Amsterdam, LA, New York, Paris. And here's something, a goal for everyone who's listening. By 2030, mm-hmm. you guys have said your ambition is to inspire and enable one billion people to live a better everyday life within the limits of the planet. It's really heady stuff and it's impactful stuff. Mm-hmm. How tough has this been to do and what has been the business case for climate change mm-hmm. for you
2: all? Well, you know, I, th- I think uh, if you look at uh, IKEA's history, you can say we started out with a founder that was a very thrifty uh, person, very smart right. around resources. And I think that's part of our story. So part of this, you know, that sustainability and <clears throat> being, being smart about people and planet uh, is part of our legacy. Uh, my own story uh, started back in 95 with the company when I Uh, joined in Asia Pacific at a time when we invested in, uh, I think, what is still today an amazing code of conduct when it comes to production. Those days we had uh, some discussions about can we afford it, will it drive costs to do the right thing with working hours, salaries, etc. And in the end of the day, it turned out to be brilliant for business. We have the most efficient partners happy uh, co-workers along etc so i think we uh, already then we we saw some um, uh, myths uh, that were we needed to bust and the same goes for for the climate um, uh, goals that we have uh, committed to where we we do not have all the answers yet so we still have some gaps to be filled the coming years but we are convinced that this is uh, uh, um, good business for three reasons or you can say for two reasons one is that i co-workers and our customers expect us to take the lead, so it would be, I would say, dangerous to not take that lead uh, from um, from your revenue side. But secondly, uh, the business model we are building is the new low cost, Uh, so sustainability shows in case by case to be the the way we will uh, uh, provide uh, low price furniture in the future. You
0: say you know what? A couple things. You said it was brilliant for the company. So I'm I'm wondering if you can put some numbers on that in terms of the business case for doing all of this. But I also wonder. You said myths to bust because I can only imagine some of the Mm -hmm. internal, you know, discussions, Jesper, that you folks had that said, no, we can't do that. I know it's good for the environment, but you know, it's going to cost too much, or we can't recreate our supply Mm -hmm. chain. So give me a little bit of that that feel.
2: Absolutely. I I think the best number I can give you is that last year we were very happy and proud uh, that we were able to grow with some 6% plus, uh, which Mm -hmm. is a good, uh, decent IKEA year. And at the same time, we reduced our absolute carbon footprint across the whole uh, scope one, two and three uh, with more than 4%. So it was possible to show uh, healthy growth and at the same time decarbonize, if you like. Uh, obviously, we are very humble and respectful to the future to continue that journey, which is the plan now. But that was, the, I think, the first year of proof uh, for us. But then you can say to the myths, I, I think there are three myths uh, that I see over and over again. One is that purpose and profit don't go hand in hand, which I think <laughs> and we think is the opposite. <laughs> um, th- there is a very strong myth that sustainability should come at a premium, which I, I think is very dangerous because then... This is a mass movement that needs to involve everybody on this planet, so therefore it should be rather seen as the new low cost. And, and finally, there are a lot of myths around that consumption is all bad. And there is bad consumption, but uh, there is also sustainable consumption. So these are the type of topics that sometimes lie in the way for taking the right type of action.
0: Well, and I do wonder, too, if things like supply chains, maybe when you guys set out, you know, in the beginning days of the company or even five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe there weren't as many suppliers or many folks that you could reach out to. But what I'm hearing today is a lot of them are out there already. So that if you want to have a greener business, a more sustainable business, you can find that in your supply chain. You just have to make those choices. Is that true? Is that fair?
2: I would say so. It comes down to, I think, from um, if you look at any type of industry, I think the entry ticket to anybody, and especially I would say companies of uh, size, that holds a responsibility. So I think you need to start by committing. And there is a bit of a leap of faith in that commitment to to Paris. Um, You need to commit to ESG reporting and transparency as well. So I think these are the entry tickets uh, for anyone. But then it all comes down to uh, what is your category plan that you need to put in place? Um, I saw uh, as an introduction here, I saw Ben at Shell in uh, in one of the most important industries, I think, to be part of the transformation, the fossil fuel industry, which we are all mm-hmm. part of and have been. Um, we, we belong to the consumption industry, home furnishing. So we have some different criterias maybe of things that we need to address. But the important thing is, uh, as much as it can be inspiring to do the symbolic changes, we need to address where it really impacts. And thereby we need to be able to also measure our, um, our activities against CO2 footprint uh, and see that it really makes sense in the totality. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are still looking for the way how to do that. But there are many plans around. And I think IKEA's plan, which we are happy to share with the world, is just one of many good examples on how to do it.
0: Government has to have a bigger role in this. I mean, you know, here's so what's so interesting is that in order to get all this done, right, at a time when we're pushing back against globalization, when we're pushing back against cooperation, we've never needed it, you know, more than ever before, whether it's on the health pandemic or whether it's on, you know, the climate impact. Mm. And yet, what's holding that up? Or where have you seen progress? What's holding it up
2: in your view? Mm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, now I, I must admit, also, I belong to the optimists of the world, so uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I believe we are at a tipping point right now, and you can sense it. Um, um, there, there is, of course, people who struggle with admitting the issues, and I, I do believe that uh, we and most of us should spend less time on that. We need to look into the people who are ready to take a leap here and, and contribute to the to the movement, uh, because it's uh, also, you know, the clock is ticking and we probably have entered what is the most important decade in the history of humankind. Uh, so we need to get moving with, with actions. Um, and thereby, uh, it's not so much about discussing the problem that is needed. It's about discussing the actions that needs to be taken to mitigate the situation.
0: You know, what's interesting? And if people are, I feel like if you're not necessarily someone who you know buys into or believes that We're having climate change you know you guys get into the science and what the impact will be in your sustainability report you talk about you know if we see um you know four degree census increase in terms of the heating of earth you write in this report our ability to mitigate the risk is very limited and the costs for the business are far higher and more damaging i mean we're talking about the bigger impact we have on Mm -hmm. our environment you know, your access to resources, the cost of resources, um, the impact of flooding or fires, like all of this starts right. to add up, right, on the cost mm. of doing business. And yes. also, it's it's not as healthy an environment for people to live in, to work within.
2: Well, you can say that to your point, we, we have we have since many years passed uh, the point where a uh, climate uh, threat is um, a theory. It's a, it's a it's, it's in our p ls already, and thereby I think it gives us more, more motivation. You can say on the on the challenging side of this from a human perspective is, of course, if we do everything right from now um, now on, we still will have to pay for the debt that we have the last, uh, say, 100 years or or uh, so. Um, so we are in a hurry to, to turn the trend, obviously, and we will need to brace ourselves a little bit for the issues that we have ahead of us in spite of that. But I think it's... Uh, It's a time uh, for the world to come together, and it's time for leadership. And I I actually do see that. If I compare six months, 12 months, 24 months back, uh, there is a a different uh, story right now, industry after industry. And I think in particular in the corporate uh, circles, there is uh, industry leaders in every category stepping forward. Um, I I have the pleasure to be part of the World Economic Forum's uh, Mm -hmm. Climate uh, Alliance. And that's a group of uh, uh, very important companies in different uh, categories that have moved from agreeing on the issue to actually committing and taking actions. Uh, So we see this in in, um, area after area. And I think to your point also, of course, this is a collaboration where we need to be very close to the um, uh, political leaders of the world, because it's an important um, collaboration where I think uh, politicians can help to incentivize and actually catalyze change much much faster if we work together so it is an opportunity particularly now after covid as a lot of wise people uh, have mentioned to build back better so that's what we need to do
0: well you know talk to me about geography i'm sure that there are parts of the world where it's tougher for you guys where you operate to kind of make the business case for climate action um, there's also parts of the world that maybe don't embrace You know, um, some of what's in your DNA, your corporate DNA, um, whether it's China on one hand or Russia, you know. So what do you do? What's your thoughts about operating there? Even if you don't agree with all of their initiatives, maybe they're not as sustainable as a company or country, excuse me.
2: Yeah. No, I, I think to start with, I think we, the, the uh, business idea and the vision of uh, IKEA is to be where the many people are, to serve people within wallets with uh, great term furnishing. Yeah. And thereby you can say we are uh, slow and long term in a way. So we don't enter a market and step out uh, overnight. Uh, but we progress uh, with investments, uh, uh, with our physical investments, with our digital investments. And our, our long term uh, goal is obviously to try to be where there are people. So, therefore, we have to be in Russia, in China, in the US, in India. We have just uh, recently started uh, as well. Then, obviously, political change tends to come uh, with a shorter cycle sometimes. Um, um, And there, you know, we have little opportunity to to do others than to adapt to realities. We have had decades of uh, open uh, trade. uh, And now we have had uh, recently a period where this has been more difficult. Uh, and with all the respect for the situation in the world, I think so far in our way of viewing it, um, collaboration over borders tend to both be good long term for both jobs and for, for consumers. So sometimes this uh, this can be a struggle. But at the same time, I think uh, we are at a place where we try to reach out and try to see how we can influence in a positive way in the society where we, where we act.
0: I do wonder too if you think um it's easier for you guys to be sustainable because it's a foundation that owns the company, right? And there's, it's a different core, it's not a corporate structure, a publicly held company where every quarterly or every half year you guys are reporting your financials. Does that give you um, a leg up in doing all of this?
2: I think so, to be honest. I think um, some of uh, my uh, fellow colleague uh, CEOs who are uh, on the stock market, for example, working with quarterly, uh, 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 targets have a different situation that maybe that we uh, um, have, and I have, have uh, being long-term, foundational-based, and also a foundation that works with, in the end of the day, charity for people and planet. So I, I think definitely so. Uh, and at the same time, we can still serve as an example because the investments we make are not about charity; they are they are fundamental transformations into a better business. So, in, in a way, I think it's okay that we can serve as, as an example for that. And then, then I think uh, it takes a lot of uh, courage today to be a leader. Because at the end of the day, you have uh, stakeholder capitalism uh, to, to care for. But at the end of the day, I think you need to also face your own family, your, your, your friends, yourself. And at, the, uh, at this time, th- there is an opportunity for each one of us to do what we believe is right. And in some cases, that can be uh, uh, easier said than done. But if we are a critical mass of companies that move in this direction, we will basically reshift the competitive landscape. And that's what actually is uh, happening as we speak, including how consumers respond to brands.
0: Well, that's, I think, a really significant part of it. You know, I think about my co-host on our radio show, Bloomberg Business Week. We both have kids, you know, and kids who are turning around looking about, you know, what are the ingredients in something or looking at where a company manufactures. What's the climate in you know, how much water is wasted in manufacturing? How significant is that in terms of, again, supporting the business case being sustainable, for being green in what you do. I mean, we talk about it so much, Jesper, um, and I know it's important to me, but I do wonder, is that becoming much more significant? Do you guys talk about it in like a boardroom? Do board, you know, are boards having these discussions because they understand it's important?
2: I think so. To be honest, uh, a few years ago, I think it was uh, more difficult to bring in those uh, uh, personal views, but also the the many uh, uh, parts of the equation here. Uh, So, uh, again, back to the myth that uh, profit and purpose were two different worlds. And and I think we belong to the lucky ones in that case. We have uh, very good discussions and we are challenged by our board to do a better job when it comes to sustainability, including communicating it. Um, So, um, But again, I think we are at the tipping point where this is becoming the new reality. And you know how it works when When you create the momentum, suddenly it becomes very lonely on the other side. (laughs) Um, And from a customer perspective, what we see is dramatic. And there is no difference in the world uh, if we go from market to market. If you go from China to US to Sweden, the the concerns are up in the 80s, 90s of uh, all the people we interview. And we interview a lot of people on this topic. They are concerned, typically, and they also typically struggle with understanding how they can impact. And of course, consumers can impact to start with by choosing what brands uh, to buy from. Uh, And this is getting more and more clear. And in particular, I think when you go uh, down to the younger generations of uh, consumers, they are more picky, they are better in researching and they are very demanding. So I think in a way, the consumer trends are helping us to, to take some decisions.
0: Hey, one thing I want to ask you, because we just got about five minutes left. Um, In addition to being climate positive by 2030, you are committed to being circular by then as well, which is fascinating to me. It's changing waste into resources across your operations, enable people at home to do so as well. This is basically how you get rid of waste. It's massive. Um, Mm. How do you do that?
2: Well, it's uh, like like many things in sustainability, there's not like one silver bullet, so to say. So I think every company needs to look at their their footprint, also in materials, so to say. But then again, when you start to pick them in the right order, you you find a lot of opportunities. So in our case, uh, to recycle paper and recycle plastic, for example, is a business benefit. It's not a problem. Um, and then, then you can go all the way to some of the material equations that we have not yet found a, a, a good solution for. So it's like case by case, you, you work your way. But if you, if you look at it, the um, latest investments we did in uh, Netherlands for a model that is being scaled out to more markets is how do you bring back uh, mattresses and how do you actually right. make new mattresses of, of the same. It's, it's not only a good business uh, case, it's a good investment. And down the line, there will be taxes and malus uh, systems put on the wrong way of, of uh, doing this. So in a way here, I think again, uh, governments and companies uh, are and should more go hand in hand in how to stimulate it. Circularity is not it's not the end goal. It's one way to achieve sustainability. And it's uh, it's a very attractive one, of most of them.
0: You know, kind of in line with this, we have an audience member asking about product durability and life cycle, the trade-off between affordability and durability. What are your thoughts on
2: that? Yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a very good question because also the I would say it's a bit in the landscape of the myths, but um, a few years ago, we took a big um, uh, address within the company to actually review everything in quality, and everything that wasn't uh, durable, we challenged and, and moved um, our targets on them. Um, so I think it's one of the steps to achieve uh, um, sustainability, is obviously, to make sure that you have longevity on, on everything you do. Um, and uh, and then you can say, one of the dangerous myths there was is also that you have to pay for quality or that you have to pay for sustainability. Um, that's not the way we see it. We think by scaling things, uh, we can build in quality and sustainability into our industries, and there's a lot of an abundance of uh, amazing examples on how that works. So I think also there you can say mass production is actually a friend of sustainability because that's how you scale change. If you had one
0: piece of advice to I think our audience here and for leaders that they could take that would significantly impact their company and make them more sustainable, what would
2: it be? I think. What has helped us was to fundamentally agree on what the reason to why this is important. Uh, secondly, I think there, there needs to be some sort of leap of faith and uh, commitment, uh, meaning that uh, giving yourself maybe, hopefully not to 2040 and 50, but to 2030, you should also, I think, uh, have some confidence that some of the answers lie uh, by exploring the, the journey ahead of us. And then I think the third would be to study some of the leaders, study some of the plans that exist, because I think there's a lot of things that we can replicate in different industries. And by working together, I think we can move this agenda faster. And we will. If we don't... We will make it happen. We have to make it happen, and we will, I'm sure. Well, that's what I
0: was going to say. I mean, if we don't get this right, what's your fear?
2: Now, if, if we don't get this right, <clears throat> we will get it right, <laughs> because the consequences will be uh, uh, tremendous for us. I so I think uh, I think we, we tend to spend less time, again, on doubting the change and um, less uh, about the fear. We, we had much more of that a few years ago. But right now, we're busy in the actions. Uh, we're working in uh, scope one, two, three. We're addressing some low-hanging fruits and some very difficult challenges. So I think it's right. just to get busy. That is how to do it.
0: Well, Jesper Broden, like I as I read through all that you guys are doing, you really are the poster child and really have the playbook in terms of how to be a sustainable company in so many different methods. So I suggest everybody really check out your website because you really um, are doing it in so many different uh, areas. Jesper, thank you so much. I um, so really Karen. appreciate it. I think I think next time we do that we do this on a sailboat. You're a sailor, I'm a sailor, so I think we should be doing it this way. <laughs> that sounds good. I wish I wish you well. Thank you so much. Of course, that's Jesper Broad, president and CEO of Inca Group, uh, joining us here for the Bloomberg Live Bloomberg Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Business
3: Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, let's do a little Bloomberg, Business Week, Economics. Now uh, we have covered a lot of ground in the first hour. I know. So let's dig into the economy if we can, Carol, because it is hard to get your arms around. We've been talking about this sort of all these cross currents in many ways. Mm-hmm. Be it a climate crisis, be it uh, a broader economic crisis. We turn to Adam Ozimek. He is chief economist for Upwork. He joins us on the phone from lovely Lancaster, PA. So amid all of this, Adam, the workforce has continued to change pretty radically. Even going into the pandemic, we saw a gig economy that was still a little bit uncertain and uneven and exacerbating some issues out there. You guys have done a recent study about the independent workforce. Talk to us about what you found.
4: Sure. So, Um, you know, talking about what's going on in the gig economy is is often, um, you know, difficult because it's such a huge amount of variety. So when we talk about what was happening before the pandemic, there really is, you know, a huge range of activities that count as freelancing. This ranges from selling things online to, um, you know, working in the transportation industry and short term gig oriented stuff. But it also includes uh, really skilled work. There's a lot of Programmers and writers and marketers, you know, working full-time professional skilled jobs here. So it's really important to understand that context before we dig in. That you know, freelancing is uh, extremely varied, and it's not just um, short-term low-skilled gigs.
0: I know. I was a freelance reporter on air at a major network, and I was freelance for a couple of years. Like, it's just amazing. Like the what, what, you know, what falls into the freelance category, uh, Adam.
4: Yeah, no, free, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, freelancing is across age groups and it's across um, skill levels. And, you know, what we really found this year is that the flexibility of freelancing and the value that that provides um, has really been on display. I mean, the pandemic has been incredibly challenging, um, both to businesses and to individuals, obviously, And there's been a a real serious need for quick adaptation. And we see that in in our report. So what we found is that a lot of people have actually started freelancing this year for the first time. So 12% of the workforce started freelancing after COVID. And at the same time, we've had a large percent of the workforce who was freelancing and they've paused. So you have a lot of people who have started and a lot of people have paused and it really just shows the flexibility and that, you know, there are parts of the economy that, you know, are really put on hold during the pandemic, and that's where the pause freelancers come in. And then there are parts of the economy that really face fast business adaptation challenges and companies needed to respond quickly to the, um, you know, uh, needing to adapt to the pandemic, needing to go remote very quickly. You know, things like spinning up e commerce operations and logistical challenges and changing marketing plans and freelancers have been a really important part of that for those companies.
1: And so, you know, one of the questions we ask in the midst of this pandemic, especially Adam, and I wonder if you were able to get to this in, in your work is sort of the what sticks and what's temporary as we sort of get to whatever this next normal is going to be because a lot of the things you're describing, you know, have been underway. The pandemic has been in many cases an accelerant. So what does this look like as people return to the office, as the economy starts to right itself? Is this something that continues? Does the move toward freelance accelerate? What what happens in your estimation?
4: You know, it's a really fascinating question because when we do this survey, like if you were to ask me last year, What I would have told you is that there's always a lot of freelancing, and it's not necessarily a growing or shrinking part of the economy. It's just something that has always been with us, and sort of this idea, there's this idea out there that, you know, everyone's going to be a freelancer, and I don't really agree with that. I think that freelancing is extremely valuable to the people who work that way, and it's extremely valuable to the businesses who hire that way, Um, but it's sort of always been with us. This year, I actually do think there is good reason to think that we're going to see some you know permanent increase in the freelancing share of, of the workforce going forward that's because a lot of the new freelancers who are doing it for the first time they say they want to continue doing it and a lot of the freelancers who have paused they say they want to do it in the future too and so on the on the sort of labor supply side i think that makes for a good case that there are going to be lots of skilled people who want to keep working like this they enjoy the flexibility um, they enjoy the lifestyle and, you know, a lot of them need it. You know, their freelancers are disproportionately both caregivers and they live in ha- households with a disabled person or are disabled themselves. Mm. So I think because they value that flexibility, that's going to make people want to freelance a little bit more than they used to in the past.
0: But does it make it a more, you know, the vulnerable part of our population? Does that help make it um increase because I sometimes think so many freelancers don't have many of the benefits that we all you know in full-time great jobs like those of us where I work at Bloomberg you know you've got great health care great programs does that create you know making um, a larger part of our population more vulnerable
4: well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. So one thing is that obviously uh, lack of health insurance is a problem for significant share of this country. And that's true for a lot of workers, both in and out of freelancing. So that's not necessarily a freelancing specific thing. Mm. And that's a policy issue that we need to do something for, for everybody is to make healthcare more affordable. The other thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of freelancers, this is not just the way they prefer to work, but the way that they have to work. So, you know, in past surveys, we've asked about um, people who are either for reasons of disability or because they're caretakers, you know, whether they could take a traditional job. And what we find is that a lot of freelancers couldn't do a traditional job. So if you, you know, went to the people who hire freelancers and said, no, you need to, you absolutely must hire only, you know, nine to five traditional employment, we think that a lot of these people, they wouldn't be able to do those jobs. They, they need the flexibility. They value the flexibility. And that's, you know, from the freelancer side, obviously, yeah. from the employer side, there's a lot of benefits, too. So I really think that it's mm-hmm. important that we don't view these jobs as just taking the place of traditional employment, but truly being additive to the economy. This is work that would right. not otherwise have
0: been done. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Adam, good to check in with you. Adam Ozmek, he's a chief economist at uh, the online talent recruitment website Upwork, joining us on the phone from Lancaster, Pennsylvania.
1: This is The Drive to the Close.
4: That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, everybody, it is time for The Drive to the Close. Jeff Crumpleman is with us. He's Chief Investments Dragist, Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Jeff joining us once again on the phone from Cincinnati, which is where they are based. Hey, Jeff, it's so nice to have you here with us. How are you?
3: Doing great, doing great, you know, so summer's coming to an end, start going into the favorite part of the season, maybe not for the market,
0: <laughs> wow.
3: but uh, you know, otherwise, so we're doing good here in Cincinnati.
0: Well, what are you anticipating for the market when you say that? I know seasonally, um, September, October, we all get a little hinky, uh, and maybe this year is kind of even more interesting because it's coming right ahead of the elections, but how do you see it playing out?
3: Well, I think you hit the operative word there. Um, seasonally, it does tend to be a period where things stall and then it picks back up at the end of the year or going through the you know, first part of the new year. And the election certainly makes it even that much more um, wiggy, if you will. Um, and I think the wall of worry items that are out there are, number one, the market has gone so hard, so fast, the fastest recovery off a 30 percent decline that we've seen. And normal profit-taking would, you know, not be unusual. And then the angst of uh, an election where you get major change in control, perhaps a sweep. And I think that you see COVID, you know, while it is thankfully finally declining, still 35,000 or so new cases a day, well down from a couple weeks ago, but still out there, um, increasing in Europe, um, you know, we don't have a vaccine yet. I think that there's enough in the psychological wall of worry camp to keep us cautious near term, but I've got to tell you that we remain positive on the next 12 months and do think that, you know, we're up from here and we've got a target of 3,500 that we're biased to want to increase if we can push through some of these short-term issues, uh, which I would anticipate. But we're, we're still kind of hold your ground right now um, with our allocation, not not increasing exposure to equity, maintaining the healthy exposure that we have.
1: And so, Jeff, talk to us about some of the names you like uh, in this era and in this period. You know, one that I believe we talked to you about before that we love talking about on this show is Lululemon. Um, You know, we Mm -hmm. saw some results from them. And what do you make of sort of where they sit? They've made some acquisitions or a big acquisition when it comes to to mirror. Where do they fit into your portfolio now? Yeah, I don't think the thesis has changed there at all. And as the stock has
3: sold off a little bit on the quarter, um, I, I thought the quarter was actually very good. You know, they beat. Um, the guidance was a little bit soft. But you've got, you know, main category in women's pants and continuing to, you know, capture the men. I think I told you that I spent something like $700 on at Lululemon, Lululemon, um uh, not too long ago going into COVID, and I've loved every minute of wearing what I can wear. As we work from our homes, and it's just a wonderful product. So I think that you continue to have um, square footage growth, penetration internationally, categories in athleisure that are growing very handsomely, and they are just um, a wonderful product and very close to the consumer. Uh, the mirror acquisition, I think, is interesting, and there there is some synergy with you know brand development um, with athleisure associated with it. But you know that I didn't think that was a knock your socks off kind of a transaction or transformational transaction in any sense. I just think they are executing. It's an execution story. And um, I would, on pullback, you know, um, be very happy at adding to positions we've had. We've entered into the stock originally somewhere around 190. So we've got, you know, very nice gains in it in relatively short order. And and it's those types of COVID-oriented stocks, to answer your original kind of question, that we've been focusing on. You know, we've upgraded. It's not like we've just sat still. We've upgraded into stocks that we think are beneficiaries of or, um, you know, those that can be stable through COVID.
0: Including like a Starbucks?
3: Well, Starbucks would be an example. You know, we, we divided the universe kind of into those that would take advantage of it, those that could manage through it, and spit into wind stocks. Uh, <laughs> that you're just saying they are so cheap that they've been overly punished, and we have not come into those. Those would be the airlines, the cruise lines, um, hotels and gaming and those kinds of – we moved away from those. Yeah. Those are more spit in the wind in nature. Uh, Starbucks, I would kind of put in they can manage through it uh, very well, and they are at a good point in the curve. We've not owned that one. Lulu we've owned for a while. Starbucks is a more recent uh, purchase. And we did that because of China recovery. China's two months ahead of us, and right. that's a big story over there. So we think that that's a cyclical recovery, a secular growth stocks with, with some cyclical, cyclical uh, improvement um, now that we're pushing through COVID um, a little further in the curve, certainly internationally.
1: We're going to hear from FedEx after the close, Jeff. Uh, how do you sort of see them? Where do they fit into the, to this larger thesis?
3: Well, that's that is one that we've owned a little bit longer, um, and I think the thesis is simply e-commerce. Yeah, and you've actually seen transports that are non-consumer airlines oriented do quite well. So we own uh, Night Swift, a trucking company. You know, as you go to online, you got to ship this stuff, and FedEx is right there. They spent oodles of money on upgrading their fleet, becoming more efficient. They made a very troubled acquisition in Europe that they're finally kind of working through. And we see them as uber cheap um, and just a a beneficiary now going forward of some of the hard work they did early on. And they'll benefit from e-commerce. And certainly over the last couple quarters, that's what you've seen with a stock. Finally, after just getting thrashed, um, we're back up over 200. And and it's still down from you know, the peak. So um, I think that this is a time to own it.
0: All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Jeff Crumpleman, thank you so much. Good to hear your voice. Chief Investment Strategist, Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors on the phone from Cincinnati.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.